to Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, a podcast dedicated to conversations with members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints right here in North Texas. Hi, I'm Janie Nielsen, and co-hosting with me tonight is my husband, Robert Nielsen. We are both children of career U.S. Air Force officers, and as such are particularly honored to talk to tonight's guest, retired U.S. Air Force, four-star general, Bruce Carlson. In addition to his distinguished military career, General Carlson is an Emeritus General Authority of the Church of Jesus Christ. So saddle up, y'all, and enjoy the ride. Welcome, General Carlson, and welcome on board, Robert. Robert is something of a military historian and is very interested to get General Carlson's thoughts on how his faith informed his military service. But first, Let's hear a little bit about how General Carlson became General Carlson. So was it your aspiration as a young man to become a pilot? What got you uh, into the Air Force? Um, I got into the Air Force in kind of an odd way. I went to college during the Vietnam War. And as you remember, there was a draft during that time. Or maybe you don't remember, but anyway, there was a draft. And uh, and so if you had, you had four years to get through school, if you didn't, then you were going to be... Uh, in the army, Vietnam. And so I decided that I didn't want to go to Vietnam as an army guy. And so I decided that I would get through college. My uncle had an accounting firm and he said, well, why don't you go into accounting and uh, you can take my business when I, when I retire. So I didn't have any other better ideas. So I said, okay. Then between my sophomore and junior year, I went down and worked for him for, for two weeks. And I realized about halfway through that two weeks that if I was going to be an accountant, I was going to have to kill myself. <laughs> and uh, decided that that probably wasn't the right option. So I started looking for something else. And uh, I'd gone my first two years to junior college. And so when I transferred to the University of Minnesota, I I went up there, uh, University of Minnesota in Duluth, Minnesota. I went up there, looked for financial aid. And they said, well, I didn't have any, but go down to ROTC. I didn't know what that was, but I went down there and they said, you bet you've good grades. will you'll qualify for a scholarship. So you just have to go to the summer camp. And it's mostly... Um, just goofing off, but uh, but you'll get to go to Disneyland because it's out at March <laughs> Air Force Base. Well, it ended up being Forbes, Kansas, which is, I don't want to insult anybody, but it's pretty much in the armpit of America there. And, uh, and uh, so I went there, but uh, halfway through, I got a ride in the backseat of a jet. And the, the minute we, uh, the gear went up and uh, we got in the air, I realized that I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And so from that moment on, I, I endured accounting through the last two years so I didn't have to change my major and then went into ROTC and graduated uh, and then went to flight school the next day and uh, then started my Air Force career. I uh, read that you uh, moved from flying into becoming a flight instructor. Uh, was that something you wanted to do or how did that turn out? <clears throat> well, I instructed in the A-10 and the OV-10 and uh, that's just part of the development of an officer. So it... Uh, if you're going to fly and you do well at it, then you're going to end up being an instructor. And so it was pretty normal. Did you have any um, uh, either family members or figures that you uh, uh, kind of were heroes in the past that caused you to want to be in the military? Or I, I didn't have anyone in my family except my dad who had been in the military. My dad was in during the war, World War II, and he was a crew chief on a B-17, but he didn't influence me at all. Uh, in any way positively to go in the military. Of course, when he was in, the the Air Corps was part of the Army. 
And, uh, and he said, you don't want to be, you don't want to go in the air Corps. It's just the stepchild of the army. And you don't want to do that. I, I know I was in the air Corps for, for three years during the war. And, and, uh, so no, I didn't have anybody that influenced me positively to do it. Well, your dad was a pilot during the world war two. So yes, in fact, they might have known each other. No, it's a small world. <laughs> it was what the 16 million men under arms, I think, in oh. World War II, and uh, and my dad was in Panama. He was a crew chief on a B-17 during the war. Okay. Yeah, he was. Um, his two older brothers were fighter pilots, and they went into the European theater, and so he was in Alabama training, and was and I guess it was the time he was very frustrated. But they wouldn't let him go. They held him back and said, we want you to be an instructor. Mm-hmm. My dad was really just that kind of person. He was always that way for me. But, uh, yeah, he was very, very desirous to get into the action with his brothers sure. and felt upset that he couldn't. So. Yeah, that's pretty normal. So what were your desires in terms of your Air Force career? Did you actually intend to stay in for a long time or what were your goals? When I entered the Air Force, my only goal was to become a fighter and, uh, and after that happened, I didn't really have any other goals for a while other than to just do it and, and get good at it. And then my next goal was to go to fighter weapons school, which is, uh, if you're familiar with the top gun program in the Navy, it, that's the air forces top gun program. It's called fighter weapons school. And then I got to do that. And then, uh, my next goal was to be a wing commander. And that kind of happened in an odd set of circumstances. I, I ended up getting out of the flying business for two and a half years, not because I wanted to, but because I was selected for some special duty. And so I did that for two and a half years. And during that period of time, I realized that what I wanted to do was become a wing commander and uh, got to do that. And tell us about what a wing commander does. That may be unfamiliar to some of our listeners. Well, wing commander is in charge of the base and all the activities on the base. So the base that I was a wing commander at was Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. And it's kind of right out in the middle of nowhere, which was an ideal place to become a wing commander because nobody wants to visit you. <laughs> You're sort of the king. Um, but I had uh, about 4,500 people, uh, had a wing of F-117 stealth fighters, and I got to fly the stealth fighter. I had a squadron of F-4s that we trained Germans in. And I had a squadron of T-38s that we trained Taiwanese in. And then I had a helicopter uh, combat rescue squadron. So it was a big outfit and a big organization. And, and it was just, and I had been stationed there as a lieutenant 25 years before. So to come home to that wing is as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. Let's back up a little bit. So your church upbringing, were you uh, born into the church, converted? No. What, what was the? My entrance into the church started really uh, in the late 1800s. And uh, during that period of time, my mother's, mother's family. So he would have been my great grandfather on my mother's side, lived in Northern Iowa. And, uh, at some point a cholera epidemic came through and killed three of his children. And, uh, so he, he buried them out and back. And after a year, he couldn't bear to look at that, those three crosses out there anymore. So, uh, he packed up his family in a covered wagon and moved to Minnesota, Minnesota, North about 250 miles to central Minnesota. And uh, one night, um, so there was a knock on their door. They had, they had a little farm and a, and a store. And uh, there was a knock on the door, and there were two young men in white shirts and, and bow ties or neckties. We haven't ever been able to determine which. And they sang a hymn. And he loved music, and so he just invited them in. 
And that night, they taught a lesson on the eternal nature of the family. Well, instantly he was he was fascinated by it. And he and my great-grandmother and my grandmother joined the church then a few weeks later. And they were baptized in a little lake called Nord Lake in central Minnesota. Then my mother grew up and became a school teacher, married a kind of a cowboy, not a member of the church. Of course, my, my grandmother had never been to a real church meeting in her life. Uh, she'd just been to cottage meetings and whatnot. And then when missionaries would come through, they would have a sacrament meeting. So anyway, my grandfather, uh, who she married, became a farmer and, and they raised six children. My grandmother had a Book of Mormon, a hymnal and some tracts. And she raised six children, five of whom have been sealed in the temple. And my mother was one of them. And so my mother grew up never having gone to church either, uh, just cottage meetings with my grandmother and her brothers and sisters. And then she met my dad after the war. She had gone to, to Detroit during the war and, and worked in the Cadillac tank factory as a secretary. And uh, when she came home, she met my dad and they fell in love and, and they got married and he wasn't a member and he was in the for joined the forestry service. And they lived on the Northern part of Minnesota there all his career. And so I was raised a Lutheran because there just was no church. And then in 1964, we moved to central Minnesota and there was a branch of the church there close. And so my mother started to go instantly. And then gradually my dad allowed us kids to go. And then in 1967, just before I turned 18, uh, my dad allowed that we could be baptized. And then I, I, by that time I had met Vicki in high school. I baptized her in 1969 when she graduated. We went to school a year. She lived in one dorm, I lived in another. And then the second year, my last year, we were married. And uh, then and we uh, went in the Air Force the day after we graduated from high school. So our first real introduction to the church was when we went to college because that they had a, uh, you know, a ward up there and it was real, you know, it was a real church. I'd gone to a small branch there and for a short time in, in Crosby, Minnesota, but you know, we didn't have programs of the church or anything like that. It was, uh, it was a, a little bit rustic, but it was the same gospel. So uh, nothing changed. So from the Mormon battalion to President Munson, we hear stories about uh, members of the church under the command of uh, military leaders that don't necessarily have gospel values and some of their peers don't, and uh, the, the strength that it takes and how they react and how they coped with that environment. What was your experience in the military, especially given this story, and what were those first 10 years like and okay. influences you had to deal with? Well, my first years in the military uh, as a Latter-day Saint were somewhat challenging. However, when I went to flight school, uh, there were 55 of us when we started the class. And uh, I think we ended up graduating about 26, but there were 55 of us in that room. And I looked across the room and there was a, a guy over there and I said, I've got to meet that guy. And I don't know why, I just got to meet him. And it turned out he was a return missionary from Spanish Fork, Utah. And so we became best friends and he if you could, if I could use the term that probably wasn't in use then, but he was my life coach. You know, he taught me how to live the gospel. And uh, he had absolutely unbending morals. And his behavior was, was always uh, a model. And uh, so that's how I, I really learned the gospel was how to live the gospel was from that good friend for a year. And by that time, then we, we were on our way to the temple 
we went to the temple uh, about six months after that when we could get a break between things in the military. And of course, in those days, you know, you had to drive to Salt Lake to go to the temple. And so we were actually stationed in Miami when we got our first break. And so we drove in an unair conditioned car, as my wife will remind you, uh, anytime she tells a story, all the way from there to Utah and then back again. So, uh, and then, yes, I did run into some characters that were, you know, I don't trust anybody that doesn't drink beer and those kind of things. But the, the thing that I found the most useful was a sense of humor. Most people cannot deal with a sense of humor if they're angry at you. They, they, don't, they don't know how to react. They'll, most of the time, they'll just sort of back off because they, they think, well, I mean, either doesn't take it seriously or, uh, or it's funny to him. or So just I guess it's not that big a deal. And, and I found that a sense of humor was probably the most important tool that I had to sort of dis, disarm people who were sort of bound and determined to force their standards on me. Now, tell us about your experience uh, in church service in Middle East, North Africa. First of all, about your calling. What were you called to, to do and what responsibilities were you given? Well, I was when I was called uh, into the 70, um, I was called in February of 2009 by President Eyring on the phone while well, I was at a gas station filling up a car with a rental car with gas. And, uh, but I, I persuaded his secretary to give me two minutes to finish and get in the car and pull over. So anyway, he called me and uh, said, be in Salt Lake in April and we'll sustain you and set you apart. And they did. And then uh, the Tuesday after that, uh, we received our assignment, which was to Salt Lake. And I was going to sit on the what they call the Mideast desk because uh, at the time, and, I, and to be honest with you, I don't know exactly what it is today, but at the time, we didn't have a presidency in the in the Middle East, North Africa area, because we didn't have any missionaries there. And so we just ran it from a desk in, in Salt Lake. We had all the other uh, elements of a presidency, but we just didn't call it a presidency. So that was gonna be our assignment. Well, then a week later, I got a call from a fellow in the cabinet in Washington who wanted me to come to Washington and run an intelligence agency. I said I couldn't do that, and uh, then they got a hold of the brethren, and the brethren decided that after they took it to President Monson that I should go do that. So, so for the first three years, my my first assignment was sort of put on hold, and I went to Washington D.C. Vicky and I uh, lived there for three years, and I ran that. Uh, it's called the National Reconnaissance Office. That's the organization that uh, develops, designs, builds, launches, and operates our spy satellite system. And uh, so I did that for three years exactly from the 12th of July, 2009 to the 12th of July, 2012. And then uh, just previous to that uh, departure from there, uh, Brother President Packer called and said, it's time to come home. So then I told the fellow that I worked for that I had to quit and uh, that we'd be going to Salt Lake. So, so when I got to Salt Lake, I pretty much got the same assignment that I had been given previous to that. I sat in the Mideast desk and I served on what's called the area committee, which is a committee that sort of keeps the senior brethren apprised of current events and whatnot in the, in the world. Although I don't think you need to keep that, those brethren apprised. I think they know more than most <laughs> of us do. So I'm mostly learned, I think. But so I did that for, uh, for the three years I was there. What is your, uh, what is kind of your outlook on the gospel in the Middle East? It seems to some folks like, much like when I was a kid, the 
Soviet Union and the Iron Curtain was going to keep the gospel from ever going there. Mm -hmm. And now we see the wonderful miracles that have occurred. What do you think about the Middle East in that area? Is it, uh... <clears throat> well, the Middle East is a fascinating area. All the world's problems are sort of, uh, if you draw a 50-mile circle around, uh, probably a 25-mile circle around Israel or Jerusalem, uh, all the world's problems are right there, all in that little area. But, the, you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Uh, I remember when the wall came down, you know, I'd spent my whole career getting ready to go fight the Russians or the Poles or the Czechs or, you know, go, sitting alert, nuclear alert. I sat nuclear alert in Germany. I sat conventional alert in Norway. Uh, we were going to go fight the Russians. There's no question about it. And of course, just like that, it was gone. And, and so I don't know what will happen. I don't know how it'll happen. What will all happen? And uh, we know how the book ends. You know, that's the great thing about the gospel. Uh, so uh, the one thing I have learned is that, that uh, over in that area, uh, despite all the evil that is there, there are some of the, the finest people that you'd ever want to meet. Just wonderful people who um, who may not understand uh, the Lord, the concept of, of Heavenly Father like you and I do, but they worship God and they love their families and they raise their families with discipline and, and dignity and uh, love. And, uh, and so just like a lot of great Protestants, you know, someday they're going to wake up and realize that they just have to do a 30 degree heading check and everything will just fall in place. In serving as a general authority, how did your military career impact this? They, they say things happen for a reason, so that was part of your upbringing. I guess the Lord expected those experiences to inform your service in the church. Did, did you see that impact? Well, my service in the church, I guess, related to some of the things that I did in the military. But I, I look at my service as a general authority as uh, more a blessing for me than it was a blessing for the church. Uh, there were a lot of things that I, I, a lot of things that the way I did things in the military were not the way that the Lord wanted things done. And uh, so I had to learn that lesson that uh, the Lord doesn't uh, work through uh, giving orders and, uh, and expecting people to just do exactly what you tell them the first time. That's not the way the Lord works. He works through kindness and love and persuasion. And, uh, and so Sometimes I, I've often thought that that was all about getting me to become someone a little better than I used to be. But in answer to your question, yes, um, there were things, there were things that I learned in the military, places that I'd been, especially my experience in the Middle East and North Africa, not so much in North Africa, but in the Middle East that, that uh, were helpful to the brethren in some small way. Uh, if you're speaking to young people that are thinking about, uh, a career in the military, what kind of advice would you give to them? Anybody that asked me if they, if they should go in the military and serve a career there, I encourage for a couple of reasons. One, uh, we're at war and we have been for a long time and there's nothing more honorable than serving your country when it's at war, especially this country. Second, the military, even though it doesn't realize it, is many times is on the Lord's errand. And a lot of great things happen because of the military. And so it's important. A lot of great things in the gospel happen because of the military. And so it's important to have the right kind of people in the military so that when those opportunities come, there's somebody there to do the right thing. 
And, uh, and the, the third thing is that uh, it is a remarkable brotherhood. Now it's a sisterhood too, I guess. Now it wasn't when I joined, but, but it's a remarkable brotherhood. There's a, there's a camaraderie and a sense of belonging that you just don't get in many other places in the world. Uh, so I, I think, uh, and because of the influence of the gospel is, is not what it was when I joined, it's so much more significant than it was when I joined the military that uh, there are great opportunities to grow in the gospel in the military. Now there's still opposition, but there's opposition everywhere. So I don't think that's a big deal. Uh, there's just great opportunities to grow in the gospel inside the military. Some have the unfortunate experiences in the military of having either physical or great emotional trauma, et cetera. How do you think the gospel, uh, how do you think the, the gospel can bless and help those folks in their recovery when they return home? Well, we believe in the gospel of miracles. And so I think, uh, the only limits that we put on what the Lord does is, a, is our own faith and uh, our own exercise of our, the covenants we've made. And so um, it's not my, um, it wouldn't be my intent to tell somebody that, well, if you just believed in the gospel, that all this pain would go away. That's not the way life works. I mean, I've had four back operations and cancer and a bunch of other stuff. So, so I know this doesn't all work that way, but the point is that what the Lord can do is help you endure those things and allow you to be happy while you're enduring those things. I'm curious as to how your service in the military impacted your family. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, if you decide to serve in the military, there will be separations. Mm -hmm. That's all there is to it. Um, and the and separations today are significantly different than they were when I was in the military. When I was in the military, the separations were you went to Thailand for a year, Vietnam for a year, and you came back for two or three years. Then you might have gone another year. Well, now the separations are rotational. So you go for six months, back for three months, or back for five months, and back for then back over to the desert for six months or four months or whatever it happens to be. And I think those are actually more difficult than the ones that I I only went away one time for a year. And, uh, you know, Vicki set herself up at home where her parents were on, were 10 miles away and, and my parents were 10 miles away. And so it was just ideal. You know, our, we had a brand new, our first boy. And so he grew up with two dads, you know, he thought it was life was pretty good. Today's is, is a little bit more difficult. And uh, the other thing that makes it more difficult is, uh, We've mobilized the reserves in in today's wars, and in in Vietnam we didn't ever do that. Well, that means that uh, somebody from uh, from the unit a unit in San Antonio, or a, let's not pick San Antonio, let's say Duluth, Minnesota, where there's no air base, there's no support system, you know, with a hospital and a chapel and personnel system and family services and all those things. None of that's there. It's just a, a reserve unit. And they get called up and leave. Now all these families throughout the community are without fathers and breadwinners and or wives and mothers and whatnot. And uh, it's a much more difficult situation to deal with. However, the gospel uh, can compensate from for some of that. Not not you can't compensate for a loved one that's gone, but but the gospel can compensate for that. You can. If a, if you have a great elders quorum president and a good relief society president, they will keep track of those people and help them and make sure that they have home teachers. And if something breaks, somebody's there to fix it. And if some kids get sick, somebody brings in food. And there's so there's 
the, the gospel compensates mm -hmm. for much of that. Yes, you'll be, there will be separations and there will be um, family troubles. I mean, it just never failed. Whenever I left, you know, one of the kids would get sick. Uh, it, and I don't know why that is. It just happens that way. Uh, but, but you can get through that with uh, another thing that helps today is communications. You know, when I, when I was in Thailand, I would go stand in line for four or five hours at what they called the Mars station, which was, it's a military affiliated re relay system, I think is what it meant. And, and you'd get a, a chit and you'd go in for three minutes into a booth, three minutes into a booth. And you would talk on a radio phone. Hello, sweetheart. Over. Hi, Bruce. How are you? Over. So <clears throat> that was communication in those days. Now, you know, people get their cell phone out and FaceTime with their kids halfway around the world. That makes, uh, I mean, you can have family home evening together. Our son was gone four different times, well, three different. He was on his fourth and when he got out uh, three different times. And, you know, he would have family home evening with his kids and his wife. And, you know, it just was different today than it is now. So right. there are other compensations that can help today. So your son's in the military too? He was up until the 20th of December. And we retired him. I went down and retired him. Uh -huh. He was a, he's an F-16, was an F-16 fighter pilot, uh, an instructor pilot at Kelly Field mm -hmm. in the National Guard for the last 12 years. The first 11 or so years he was in the, in the uh, regular Air Force. He was a fighter pilot. How did you end up retiring in North Texas? Uh, well, I retired in North Texas sort of by accident. When we retired in 2009, thinking that we were going to you know, live a life of uh, leisure and whatnot. Uh, we uh, had property in uh, uh, north of San Antonio on the north side of Canyon Lake. And we were going to build a home there and I was going to start a little business. Shortly after we got there, then we received that call. I was, just, I was working already, uh, but we received that call. And so we had to sort of put that on hold. In fact, we had to sell that property. And then we uh, ended up going to Washington for three years because of that assignment uh, out there. And then we our last three years in church service, we were in Salt Lake. So we bought a home in Bountiful, Utah, which is a beautiful place. And then uh, I, we thought we would stay there. Uh, I thought we would stay there forever. And we had one at the time we had our youngest boy, Scott, who has seven children. They were living in uh, uh, West, West Point, Utah. And he worked at Hill Field. He was an engineer out there. And then Scott got his PhD in engineering, mechanical engineering. and Lockheed Martin, because of his specialty, Lockheed Martin here in Fort Worth offered him a job. And he said, Dad, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to have to take this job because it's sort of the dream job. So when Vicki found out that our oldest boy lived in San Antonio, our daughter lives over by Tyler, and now our son was going to live in Fort Worth, she decided we didn't need to stay in Bountiful anymore. So we sort of ended up here on, by accident. And so Vicki... Uh, found this community and and then uh, we had a house built here and so that's why we're here. Now you said you're getting ready to start back to work. What does that mean? Oh well I <clears throat> I've I've worked ever since I was released. <laughs> I do mostly uh, board work. So I, I sit on boards of directors uh, of public and um, nonprofit organizations and then I do a little bit of consulting. And then I do some pro bono work for the Air Force. So this month, I start tomorrow, and it's kind of all month. 
So, but are you able to stay here or you have to travel? No, I travel tomorrow. I'll go to, if the weather holds, I don't know what the weather's going to be tonight, but mm -hmm. uh, if tomorrow holds, I'll go to Logan, Utah. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow, uh, Wednesday night, Thursday and Friday, I have a meeting with uh, the Space Dynamics Lab. And then the next week, I'll leave on Sunday afternoon and go to Washington, D.C., have a meeting with the Air Force, uh, helping them do a study, a space affiliated study. And then the week after that, uh, I'll go to uh, Phoenix for a board meeting. And the week after that, I go to uh, Logan again, and then to Washington, D.C., and then out to California. Your life sounds so amazing. No, it's, it's <laughs> too busy. Quite a ride, huh? It has. I've, had, I've been a been very fortunate. Vicki and I have been very blessed. Three wonderful children, 13 yeah. great-grandchildren. We're just very, very fortunate. You could still be an accountant in Duluth, though. I could be an accountant <laughs> in Morris, Minnesota. but I, Well, I probably wouldn't be. I'd have probably had to shoot myself. <laughs> so now I get a chance to verify a story. So uh, my, uh, my dad's youngest brother was in uh, the Livermore Labs out in California. <laughs> and he told me the story that uh, apparently down in California, Nevada desert, there was an enormous concrete target that had been created, I guess, during World War II, and bomber crews would just bomb this target. And so in the Livermore Labs, they were working, at, they had some role in testing the bunker buster bombs, and they decided to try this out on this target and destroyed it and got a reprimand from the Air Force. <laughs> You've destroyed this historic target. We've used it all these years. Have, did you, have you ever heard that story? I was just curious. Uh, no, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> but it's a great story. Really I, I wouldn't stop telling it. <laughs> We've had the privilege this evening of talking to retired U.S. Air Force, four-star general, and emeritus general authority of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Bruce A. Carlson, an authentic American hero. I don't know about you, but I sleep better at night knowing men and women like General Carlson are standing guard. That's all for tonight, folks. It's time to bank the fire and call in the dogs. Till next time, this has been Janie and Robert Nielsen for Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices. Good night, everybody.